0: All right, well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 24, where we're going to be looking at verses 50 through 53. Proposition 215 was California's first statewide medical marijuana voter initiative adopted in the U.S. And if your business office is at 535 5th Street on Manhattan Island, New York, you have 215 Starbucks within a five-mile radius. Seven and a half feet is equal to 215 centimeters. You can purchase a 215-carat fake amethyst diamond pendant for $59, or you can actually get a 215-carat D-colorless diamond for $10 million. The atom, the atomic mass of francium is 215. 5 times 43 is 215. 215, 215 books have been written uh, about the Yankees. As of the year 2000, there were 215 housing units in Russellville, Ohio. There are 215 Robert Barbers and Patty Martins in the U.S. White Pages. And 215 is the Dewey Decimal System for the Classification for Science and Religion. It's also the number of sermons I've preached in Luke. (laughs) And if you've attended Calvary Bible Church for eight years or less, if your children are eight years and younger, they might wonder if there's any other book in the Bible. (laughs) They might think Luke is the only one. But uh, uh, as I was looking on the internet to find some 215 things, I found something very interesting. Uh, I started preaching in Luke August 14th, 2003. And right when I was beginning to preach was the northeast blackout, the second largest blackout in the history of the United States. Power outages were reported in Cleveland, Akron, Toledo, New York City. Westchester, Orange, Rockland, Baltimore, Buffalo, Rochester, Albany, Detroit, New Jersey, Vermont, Connecticut, and Ontario, Canada, 508 generators and 265 power plants shut down just as I was beginning to preach. (laughs) So whatever that means, I'm sure it's significant. But let's get back to the subject at hand, which is Luke, and I just want you to know, life does continue after Luke, Lord willing. Uh, This summer, we're going to be doing a series on the godly discipline, so it's going to be very practical very encouraging series just for uh, just how to read your Bible, how to pray, how to organize your time. We're going to talk about fasting and just all sorts of things like that. That's going to happen through the summer. And then in October, we'll, beginning, we'll begin the, our study of the book of Genesis. And uh, if you're thinking, well, how many years is Genesis going to take? Um <laughs> I'm actually going to not going to go through it very sl- uh, slowly. I'm going to take the first 3 chapters real slow and then speed up from chapters 4 through 11 and then speed up even more from 12 through 50. I'm planning about 2 years. So, uh Genesis is the next book on the horizon. Simultaneously on Sunday nights, uh we're going to be dealing with some of the more technical issues related to evolution and creation. So, if you're interested in that, that's actually going to start earlier than the Genesis series from the pulpit Uh, We're going to start the Genesis series in the pulpit in October, but uh, starting August 28th, we're going to start looking at some of the issues related to the creation evolution debate. Things like uh, the age of the earth, intelligent design, irreducible complexity, the second law of thermodynamics and entropy, uh, the fossil record and polystrata and uh, the geologic column and geochronometers and, I mean, cool stuff. So that's all going to happen uh, coming up in the fall, Lord willing, on Sunday nights. And so uh, you can uh, just anticipate those things uh, this uh, uh, this summer. There will actually be a kind of uh, a joint worship time and a separation of men and women for kind of a, a study going on that uh, you'll learn about at the end of the service today. But we are now in our last little three verses of the Gospel of Luke. And it's some 40 days after Jesus has resurrected from the dead, and uh, he has appeared to his disciples over the period of these 40 days, and he's instructed them in the Word of God. In other words, he's opened their mind to understand things that before they were pretty clueless to, and we saw that over and over again, how they didn't understand, they didn't understand. Well, now they do. He has gone back and taught them through the scriptures and all these things that didn't make sense to them before his resurrection are now, they're getting a clue. They're understanding. So he's equipping them. So they have been in, were in Jerusalem shortly after his resurrection for about eight days and then they went to Galilee and stayed there until Jesus told them to return to Jerusalem and wait to receive the promise of the Father, which was the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell in them, and the formation of the church, which is a spiritual body of both Gentiles and Jews. Uh, Pentecost is about 10 days away from our text. They're waiting, uh, they've been waiting in the upper room, um, and Jesus has appeared to them and talked to them And now he is leading them out of that upper room. He's restated the great commission which he gave them at the Sea of Galilee, but he's told them again that they need to preach repentance to all nations starting in Jerusalem. And though the task is difficult, uh, they are the A-team. They've been trained, they've been equipped, they've seen the miracles, they've been uh, promised power from on high with the Holy Spirit, and so out of all of them, they are the leaders who the whole future of the church now rests upon them to carry out the task of spreading the gospel throughout the globe. So look in your Bibles with me at Luke 24 and follow along. I'm going to read verses 50 through 53. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple Praising God. Pray with me. Father, I just ask that you would help us to understand this text... And not only to understand it, but to remember it and apply it to our lives. I thank you for all the truths that we have learned studying the gospel of Luke. And I just pray that those truths would be brought to our remembrance whenever needed. That we would remember them. And Father, obey them for your glory. Give us wisdom. Give us understanding. And give us the grace to obey the things we're going to receive this morning. That we might leave here equipped to give you glory, we pray in Christ's name, amen. The first thing uh, we're going to do is just kind of point out uh, one of the actions Jesus did for the disciples, and then one fact that Jesus accomplished, and then one response which uh, should follow because of these things in order to glorify our Savior. The first is, your king blesses his disciples. Look at verse 50, and it says... And he led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. You remember they were staying in Jerusalem in the upper room. And Bethany is that small town just over the Mount of Olives. So when you're in Jerusalem, there is a valley called the Kidron Valley. And it's not a huge valley. And then there is the Mount of Olives, which if you're from, you know... Idaho or Colorado or something, and you're used to huge granite peaks jetting up out of the ground. It's nothing like that. It's more like a large hill. It's not even, you know, like the hills we have here. Um, uh, We're just talking a very large hill. It's the Mount of Olives. So they would then go up the Mount of Olives and just crest the hill. And on the other, the slope of the eastern slope there was this village called Bethany. And they probably weren't in Bethany proper, uh, but because they were closer to Bethany than Jerusalem, having gone over the hill a little bit. They were described as being in Bethany. So right off the bat, though, we can see that Jesus is is leading them. And you have to ask yourself, why is he, where is he taking them, and what is he doing? Well, we know he's going to ascend. And just knowing that, it shows us Jesus's love and compassion. I mean, he could have, if he wanted to, you know, slipped on the ring of power and just vanish, you know, uh, like, uh, Bilbo Baggins and Lord of the Rings and just goodbye. He didn't do that though. He didn't say, you know, I'm leaving and just disappear. He didn't say, okay, I told you everything you need to do and then just be gone. He's leading them somewhere. And you have to ask yourself, why, why would he do this? Well, he's doing it for their encouragement, for their blessing, for their faith, for their hope to make God's word more clear He departed because, in this way because he wanted to show love to them. And so Luke gives us actually more detail. What's neat about it is Luke, as we talked about last week, if you were here, seems to have run out of parchment. When you would go down and buy a a, a roll of parchment, you know, it's only so long. It's not like you'd stick in a stack of 500 white sheets into your printer and just keep going until you ran out of things to say, you would run out. It'd be like, you know, when you try to tell somebody on a postcard what you did, you start writing and you get a little small at the bottom and they're trying to read with a magnifying glass and you know, you're getting, well, this is kind of what's happening. He's running to the end of his parchment and you can tell because he's saying some amazing things in some rather short sentences. I mean, he's getting down to some very clear... It just says he, he went up and you know, send it up. It's like, so is that it? That, that's it? Well, what's neat about it is Luke then goes on to write a second book in the New Testament. It is the book of Acts. So he wrote them for the same person to, one, to talk about the life... Death and resurrection of Jesus. And the other to talk about how the Holy Spirit worked through believers to establish the church. And so... He tells us this in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. Luke is still writing, but he gives us more detail of what is happening in our text, saying, Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord... Is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, "It is not for you to know the times and epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be My witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea, all Judea and to Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth." So the disciples, you see, remember, we talked about the Jewish mindset. They were under oppression so long that all they could see in the scriptures was the Messiah comes, beats up the bad guys, and exalts Jerusalem and the Jews. And that was really their hope. They were just longing for the Messiah to come back, deal with Rome, save them, and exalt Jerusalem. And so that's pretty much all they had. Well, the disciples now, having been trained by Jesus, having these 40 days of post-resurrection instruction now understand they understand the messiah had to come a first time to die for the sins of men so that perfect atonement could be offered up so men could be forgiven and made just in the sight of god through the death burial and resurrection of christ and that he would then come back a second time to restore the kingdom that's why they say lord is it at this time you're going to establish the kingdom? Which tells us they don't know he's going to ascend right then. They've left Jerusalem. They've walked up the hill and they're like, okay, he's, he's did the, he lived, he died, he rose again. He's got us trained. I think he's going to take us up to the top of the mountain here. I think he's going to say, watch this. I'm wiping out the Romans. No, but that's not what he does. That's not what he does. He says, I want you to know you aren't going to know the time. I can't tell you the time. But, I, but it's not going to be any time soon because the first thing you need to do is tell everybody to the remotest parts of the earth the gospel. Oh, you know, that's not a very easy task. And the church is still trying to accomplish that task. But notice the end of verse 50 in our text in Luke 24 We read that Jesus lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now, what is a blessing? Really, a blessing is to speak well of somebody, speak happiness to them, um, speak prosperity and goodness upon them. God uh blessed Adam and Eve for instance or Noah and his family and they multiplied. Uh, God blessed Abraham, and he became exceedingly rich. God blessed Isaac and he became rich. Uh, God blessed Joseph, even through all of his trials, he became ruler of Egypt and delivered the people of Israel from the famine. And so when God blesses somebody, they are blessed indeed. You remember the story of Esau and Jacob, how when Esau was younger and came in, he was hungry and he said, I'm starving like your average teenager. I'm going to die if I don't get something to eat. And so Jacob, uh, longing for the blessing of God, said, well, I'll give you a bowl of this soup if you sell me your birthright. He says, what do I care if I die? You can have it. And so he gives him the blessing of the firstborn. Of course, later on in his life, Isaac is dying. Their father is dying. And Isaac plans on giving the blessing of the firstborn to Esau, not Jacob. But by right, it was Jacob. And so... Jacob and his mother, of course, plot to deceive Isaac, and Isaac then blesses Jacob rather than Esau. So Esau comes in and says, Dad, I'm here. I've got some game. I've made some food, and now I'm ready for the blessing. He's going, who are you? I'm Esau. And this is what we read. Well, who was then that hunted game and brought it to me so that I ate of all of it before you came and blessed him? And yes, he shall be blessed. It was irrevocable. See, whenever God blesses somebody or has somebody blessed somebody, like in this case where God tells Isaac to bless his child with the blessing of the firstborn, once that happens, it's irrevocable. Now, you know, you might ask me, well, you know, could you bless me, Pastor Jack? You know, could you come to my house and, you know what? I could bless you with my presence. <laughs> I could open my wallet and give you a few bucks. But that's it. See, I can only bless, we can only bless people out of what we already have. God, when he blesses, he can bless major eternal, irrevocable blessing. And so when we see what's happening here, the disciples now have all gone up and Jesus knows he's going to depart and so he blesses them because he wants them to succeed in the mission he is sending them on to spread the gospel over the entire globe. William Henderson says, quote, This act of blessing is more than a mere well-wishing. It is an effective impartation of welfare, peace, and power. To be sure, there is nothing mechanical or magical about it, but it is effective for all those whose minds and hearts are truly receptive, end quote. If you're going to receive blessing, real blessing, it's got to be from God or the messenger God has sent. And this is what is happening you can just see him there cresting the summit and Jesus then stops he turns around and he begins to bless them and they're probably thinking you know i wonder what's going to happen now i wonder if he's going to establish his kingdom now i wonder what the next thing is soon thousands of jews and gentiles will will be brought into the church through these disciples, which we learn from Acts uh, chapter 1. There's about 120 of them. And and these disciples are going to be the force that God uses primarily the apostles to bring thousands, first of Jews and then later of Gentiles, into the church. That spiritual body of both Gentiles and Gentiles, and Jews, and you know what though Jesus is blessing these disciples here uh, specifically for the task he 's blessed us as well it 's not just that these one hundred and twenty or just the twelve got a blessing in order to do the will of God, we all have blessings i i 'll just give you a few of the scriptures. Listen to how Jesus has blessed every believer. In John chapter 1, verse 16, it says, For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. Think about that. How great is the fullness of God? It is infinitely full. And it says, John says, Of God's fullness we believers Have all received and grace upon grace. Grace like waves pounding upon the shore. Grace keeps coming upon us and coming upon us. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, Paul writes He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? All things. Freely. If God is willing to send his son into the world to die a torturous death on the cross for you. How will he not also with that freely give you everything else that's less? Ephesians one three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ? Whoa! I mean, think about it. You've got every one, not some, not a good portion of them. Every single blessing. Second Peter one three, seeing that His divine power has granted to us. Everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. You know, a lot of times when we pray, God, do this, I do this, I I confess, you know, give me this, help me with this, give me grace, and God's up there going, I already did. Just use it. You've already got every spiritual blessing and grace upon grace and all of my fullness and everything pertaining to life and godliness. What else do you want? we've got it. You're blessed. And those blessings are irrevocable. But what if you blow it? They're irrevocable. What if you do that? They're irrevocable. What if you're mediocre? Irrevocable. They're irrevocable. Jesus has blessed every believer. And so now every believer has their sins forgiven in Christ. Washed away in His blood. They have perfect atonement. They are declared to be right or just in the sight of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That Christ has paid the penalty. He's redeemed us. He has sanctified us. Made us holy. He has adopted us as sons and daughters of God. He has set aside for us an eternal, imperishable, inheritance that is waiting in heaven for every believer think of all the ways you have been blessed because you know jesus christ it's mind-boggling the holy spirit the ability to understand the scripture the power to obey the fellowship of believers spiritual gifts the blessing of marriage children just on and on and on god has given us so much James says in James chapter 1 verse 17, Every good thing and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of light to whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That all these things just come down from God to us to bless us, that we might love Him and glorify Him. Even if your life is miserable, even if your life is full of trials, if you know Jesus, you have all blessing irrevocable all-blessing. Even if you are suffering, you know that to live is Christ and to die is gain, and to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I mean, you might think to yourself, but Pastor Jackie, you just don't understand. I lost my job, and my wife left me, and my dog got hit by a car, and I threw on my back and cracked a tooth and lost my money in the stock market had my car stolen i was framed for robbery and a meteorite struck my house caught it on fire and burned everything to the ground i didn't have meteorite insurance <laughs> i've lost everything how can that be a blessing romans 8:18 8, says the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to the saints you will never be in heaven going, well, that wasn't worth it. I had to suffer on earth. And this whole eternity of wonder is not worth it. Romans 8, 28 says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All Things are working together for good. You have to realize that God knows everything. And God knows everything before it happens. And God has the power to stop anything before it happens. So when something does happen, he knows it, he approves of it, and he uses it for your good. But what if it's painful? He uses it for your good. Thomas Watson, in his work, The Mischief of Sin, writes, quote, all winds of providence shall blow you to heaven because all things work together for good. You shall be a gainer by your losses. Your crosses shall be turned into blessings. Poverty shall starve your lusts. Sickness shall refine your grace. Persecution shall bring you nearer to God. All the stones the Jews threw at Stephen. Knocked him faster to Christ the cornerstone. Every cut in God's spiritual diamonds. Make them sparkle all the more. End quote. James Chapter one, verse two through four said, "Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials or multifaceted or varicolored trials in the Greek, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." I'm sorry, you just didn't don't get godly laying at the beach. You don't get godly sitting in an easy chair stuffing your face with bonbons. That doesn't, that's not what makes you godly. It's trial. It's pain. It's suffering. And when you know Christ, your worst life in this world is nothing compared to the glory you will receive. And as Samuel Rutherford said... On his deathbed, having suffered many years, glory dwells in Emmanuel's land. Being a Christian is being blessed more than Solomon, more than Rockefeller and Bill Gates combined, because all your blessings are holy and they're eternal, never ending. And you have them if you know Christ. Secondly, your king ascended into glory. This is what we see Jesus did. After he blessed them, this is what happened. Jesus blesses them. Look at the middle of verse 51. And he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And that's all Luke says. It's like, can't you tell us some more? I mean, what? You just like that and you just go, okay, well, let's go. Let's say, well, he tells us more in Acts, thankfully. Acts chapter one, he gives us a little more data. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus whom who is uh, been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Right after Jesus blesses them, he started to just rise up like a rocket from a launch pad. Without the smoke, without the thunderous sounds and fire, he just started elevatoring into glory, into the clouds. Now imagine being there and seeing that. You know, you're watching, and he's going up, and you're, you're looking at each other like, whoa! Like, what's happening? What's happening? Some may have got a clue and maybe were weeping. For certain, this was final proof that Jesus was the Messiah. He was going back into heaven. They were watching him go into heaven. They could now anticipate what the Jews had been anticipating, that he would come again in glory to establish his kingdom on the earth. And that is why they asked him, is is it that this time you're restoring the kingdom? And they thought, all right, it's happening now. Jesus now rules from heaven. The Psalms are full of Texts like this, like Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, speaking of the size, Surely I will tell the decree of the Lord, You are my Son, today I have begotten You. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as Your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as Your possession. Or Psalm 8, 6, You make Him to rule over the works of Your hands, You have put all things under His feet. Or Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, right after Paul talks about Jesus' humbling self and dying even to the point of death, death on the cross, he goes on to say, for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. We sang it earlier. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is an exaltation that has followed Jesus' resurrection. And it started with His ascension. He ascended into glory at the right hand of the Father to rule and reign until He comes back in glory. Sometimes when you go to buy a house or a car, you go to the bank and you get pre-approved. That way the seller isn't wasting his time trying to get you to look or buy something that you can't afford. You get pre-approved. Well... This is the fact Jesus' ascension is really pre-approval of our own resurrection and exaltation. Because Jesus rose, we will rise. Because he was exalted, we will be exalted. Because he was glorified, we will be glorified. So these things are a picture. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. And he ascended into heaven to take us to where he would end up being. Paul says in Romans eight eleven, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who is in you. You will be resurrected. Well, where are you going to end up? In heaven with Jesus. He has gone before. He came from heaven. He went back to heaven. He's going to come back from heaven. And rule on earth. The words of the angel recorded in Acts 1 always strike my funny bone. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking to the sky? I just think, why did they ask that question? I mean, the angels don't know what it's like to be mortal. It's like, what's the big deal? He just went into heaven. I mean, we do that every day. And you know, I don't know what the disciples are doing. It was just It's going to be so good to talk to them. This is kind of a little bit of supernatural overload, don't you think? Jesus ascending into heaven, angels appearing. And what's amazing is, you remember what happened when Jesus entered into the world when he was born? Who showed up to the shepherds? Angels. And now Jesus is leaving. And who shows up for his departure? Angels. Angels. Maybe one of the disciples, kind of scared and a little fearful, says, trembling voice, well, it may be normal for you, but it's not normal for us. And they're looking in the sky. And maybe one of the angels looks at the other and goes, oh, yeah, that's right. They're mortal. They're stuck on earth until they die. The body ascension of Jesus Christ is glorious. It is a picture of what will happen at Jesus' second coming. Where are they? Acts. You can read in Acts 1. They're on the Mount of Olives. They're right over, our text says, at the end of Luke here, uh, up the slope from Bethany. So they're on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus, in plain sight, bodily, physically, rises from the Mount of Olives up into the clouds of heaven. And the angels tell the disciples, according to Acts 1, that Jesus will come in just the same way you have watched him go into heaven. In Zechariah chapter 14, we have really a a prophecy of this that was given 500 years before that. There's actually somebody in the church that has this on their license plate. Over that direction. And uh, it, one of your goals is to try and find out whose car has Zechariah 14, 4 on it. Zechariah is talking about what's going to happen when Jesus returns. The Jews are surrounded by the armies of the Antichrist. The Antichrist, having taken over the world, has gathered the world's armies against the Jews. Two-thirds of the Jews are slaughtered. One-third are then preserved and protected by God as they cry out to Jesus as their Messiah and Lord. And this is what we read starting in... Zechariah 14 verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth to fight against those nations as when he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from the east to the west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to a Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Verse 9 goes on to say, and the Lord will be king over all the earth, and in that day the Lord will be his own the only one and his name the only one. Zechariah writing some 500 years before this says this is what's going to happen. There's going to be a huge army. They're going to surround Jerusalem. Two thirds of the Jews are going to die. The rest are going to cry out to the Lord and Jesus is going to descend. And where is he going to stand? On the Mount of Olives. The very same place the angel said he will come in just the same way as you've seen him go. He will stand on the earth. You say, well, what's the whole deal with the mountains being torn in two? That is such a cool rabbit trail that it would be fun to take. But if you, if, you, if you ever read the book of Ezekiel and it talks about the temple and the water flowing out of the temple and pretty soon it flows east. Well, if you've ever been in Jerusalem, there is no flowing east. There's a mountain there. But it talks about the water flowing east out of the temple. During the millennial reign of Christ and how it becomes a rushing river and it pours into the Dead Sea and the Dead Sea becomes fresh and there's trees and, and prosperity and fish in the sea. All of that happens during the millennium. And I always read that and thought, how could the water flow east? And then when it reminded me, when I was I, I taught through Zechariah, that when his feet stand on the Mount of Olives, the mountain is torn in two. So that all the Jews apparently who are held up in Jerusalem are able to flee from the armies of the Antichrist while Jesus executes all the unbelievers simultaneously on earth. They're all killed. They're all annihilated. They have been given their chance. They have been told the two witnesses have been preaching to them. They've rejected God and rejected God and rejected God. They won't submit. They won't humble themselves. They won't repent of their sins. And so when he comes, they're all slain. And everybody who's placed their faith in Christ is rescued. And then the scriptures talk about Jerusalem being exalted. There's geographical changes. And pretty soon it becomes really the center of the earth. The focal point where Jesus establishes his kingdom. And so what's interesting about our text is that it is an allusion to that very thing. The angels are affirming what Zechariah prophesied 500 years before that. And of course his coming will be a lot more glorious than his ascension. The point was as he ascended from the Mount of Olives in plain sight. And bodily, and he will return in the same way. But the scriptures talk about the heavens being rolled back like a scroll. That he comes with fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not love God. And to rescue those who have placed their faith in him. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and he just flies, his coming flashes forth like lightning from the east to west. That's why you don't have to go find him anywhere. He's not in a cave. He's not in the desert. The whole world will be able to see Jesus come back. And people go, "Well, that's in Jerusalem's on the other side of the globe." Don't worry about it. God will make it happen. You won't be wondering. I wonder what's happening over there. You don't have to watch it on the news. Jesus' coming will be seen by all. It will be the great joy and anticipation of all those saints living in the last time, and it will be the terror to the wicked. Kind of like when the SWAT team shows up at a bank robbery. The robbers are scared. Those who are held hostage are relieved. Jesus predicted his ascension. He comforted his disciples in John chapter 14 verses 2 and 3 saying, In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Jesus alludes that I'm going to go back to the father. I'm ascending into glory. But I want you to know, you who have placed your faith in me, I will come back and I will receive you to myself that where I am in heaven, you may be with me also. The Apostles' Creed reads in part, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who has, was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, And descended into hell. On the third day he rose again and ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come to judge the living and the dead. He ascended and is coming to judge the living and the dead. But he didn't do all of this merely for us though we have access to him, if we're believers, that we have all these blessings, if we're believers, and if we're not believers, Jesus is waiting right now to forgive us our sins. If we are willing to turn from whatever we're living for now to place our faith in him, he's willing to forgive us, to love us, to cleanse us, to adopt us as his children right now. But still that, he didn't just do that for us. He didn't say, well, I'm going to send Jesus down so I can hand out, get out of the hell free cards. That wasn't the purpose of his coming. Or so that we could have blessing in eternity, which we will. It was to glorify his name. It was to create a people who would worship him for all eternity. People who are unworthy sinners, who didn't deserve to be in his presence, who didn't deserve salvation, who would worship him for all eternity. And this brings us to our final point, your king must be worshipped. Look at verse 52, and they, after worshipping him, just stopped there. So apparently, Jesus ascended, the angels talked to them, and then there was a little worship time. What happened? Well, we aren't told. You know, he's running out of parchment. But we know that Jesus was worshipped in other places, like when he calmed the sea Those who were in the boat, Matthew 14, verse 33 says, uh, said, uh, worshipped him and said, certainly you are God's son. They worshipped him in the boat. In John chapter 9, verse 38, you remember the blind man who everybody knew. He was born blind. His parents were still alive. And he would beg all the time. Jesus healed him. And then when the Pharisees saw that he was healed and said, well, this looks like the guy, but this couldn't be the guy because he can see now. He says, no, no, I'm the guy. I'm the guy. They go, like, well, how did this happen? What well, was Jesus? Could have been him. So how did it happen? It was Jesus. No, that couldn't be him. So how did it happen? Listen, all I know is I once was blind and now I see. And it was this Jesus guy who did it. And so they kick him out of the synagogue and say, you can never come back. Jesus meets up with him and asks him if he believes that he is the Son of God. He says, yes, Lord, I believe. And he fell down and worshipped Jesus. You remember doubting Thomas who after he said, "Oh, I'm not going to believe until I see him and put my hands on the nail prints. And so Jesus shows up and he sees him and he falls down and says, My Lord and my God and worships him. And yet Deuteronomy 613, among many other texts, are clear, you shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. We are to only worship God. Well say, so how could they worship Jesus? Because he was God. He was God in human flesh, he was the Son of God. Jesus, being God in human flesh, must be worshipped and prayed to and loved and adored and served and obeyed, not only in this life, but for all eternity disciples somewhere on the Mount of Olives probably prayed for a while, maybe sang a song or two, and Jesus was gone. He was gone. Physically, he was out of there. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you always, even at the end of the age. But his physical presence was gone. But the disciples were equipped. They had three years of boot camp, spiritual forces training, Their minds were open to understanding the Scriptures. They understand Scriptures like never before, like really nobody on the earth. They needed one more thing, heavy artillery, the Holy Spirit. And that was promised, and they were just waiting around. But in the grace of God, they were given some shore leave, and for 10 days or so, they were able to just worship Christ. They go back and talk and just have some rest, because believe me, Starting at Pentecost, when all those people were saved, it was hard on them until death. And so, they began to worship Him. And worship is really misunderstood today. I talk to people a lot of times who have this idea that if I feel good, worship is good. Worship is not about you feeling good. It's about God getting what He wants and deserves. You know, a lot of people have the idea that if I'm really emotional, I'm really worked up, man, it's like, yeah, let's sing some songs I like, and you leave feeling jazzed that you've worshipped. I mean, people do things like flop around on the floor, thinking that's the worship of God. People do all kinds of weird things, like bark like dogs, and they get so worked up. And, you know, there's guys who are preaching who get, they they just, they're comedians. They're just up there to attract attention to themselves. And people go, man, I was so cool. I was so fun. That's not worship. And then on the other extreme, there are those cold dead churches that have their creed. They're Orthodox and so we do everything by the creed. we have a scripture for everything. we have a statement for everything. we have a ritual for everything. We go through the motions here. the preacher is a mortician and the congregation is a cadavers. <laughs> the church building is a crypt. And of course ideally it would be great if they had some emotion and truth guiding all of everything they do not one not the other but both so that you are passionate you are zealous you are joyful that you're worshiping God with all your heart mind soul and strength that Your whole being is involved in worshiping God, but every point of your being is being informed by the word of God so that everything you do does give glory to God. There's really two categories of worship. First is corporate worship. The first kind of worship is corporate worship. That's when we gather together. Like this morning, we sing songs together. We pray together. We give together. We serve each other. We fellowship together. Everything's done together. Or when you go to a Bible study or to a prayer meeting or whatever, you're gathering together corporately with other believers. There's that kind of worship. And then there's the bulk of everything other kind of worship we do, and that's individual worship. Like Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. All of your life must fit into this category. Nothing is to be outside the realm of worship. So your TV watching, your movie watching, your eating, your sports, your working, your lawn mowing, diaper changing, dishwashing, whatever it is, must fit into that category. So that you are living in such a way that you're giving glory to God in whatever you do. That there's nothing in your life that is outside what is permitted in the word of God. As Paul says in Romans 12, 1, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, the moment you get saved, the plan is for you to crawl up on the altar and then to stay up there until your whole life is burnt up in worshiping the Lord. The moment Jesus disappeared out of sight, the first response of the disciples was to worship. And of course, that's what we are to do both corporately and individually to live in this world, to think about Jesus, to pray to Jesus, to talk to Jesus, to ponder Jesus, tell others about Jesus. Just as a young couple deeply in love with each other, they're they're consumed with thinking about who each other. And as their wedding day approaches and they're thinking about it, they're, that's all they think about is just the wedding and getting married. Well, that's how it's supposed to be with believers in Jesus. Just every day, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And the Christian life is about striving to capture all of our moments for Christ. It's trying to discipline ourselves so that whatever we do, we do all, all to his glory, to his honor, and to his praise. Look at verse 52 the middle of verse 52 where we see the disciples continue to worship as they return to jerusalem with great joy notice that in their worship they had joy i mean they boot camp was over class was finished now they just needed graduation at pentecost they were loaded They were trained. They were equipped like soldiers getting ready to enter battle. And it was going to be pretty fierce. I mean, remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 as he begins to talk to them about what it's like to be a disciple? He says this Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Well, that's not very fun. You need to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be You will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child and children rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death and you will be hated by all because of my name. Why? Because of his name. Because when you go out and you live for Christ and you speak up for Christ and you share Christ with people the world often hates you. But there's joy. There's joy in that. You remember the disciples in the first part of Acts when they went out and they're preaching the gospel and they beat them and scourged them and they left rejoicing. And what is that? You know, we have somebody who yells at us and our ears go back and our tail goes between our legs. It's like, yeah, somebody was mean to me. I tried to tell him about Jesus, and it's... these were beaten. They were whipped. And they left rejoicing because they were worthy to considered worthy to be suffering for Christ's sake. Jesus said, "It's through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven." And you know what? These were all the leaders. These are the leaders of the movement to come. These are the the foundation people of the church. And you think, well, why does this happen? Why? Why do? Why do those who are leaders have to go through so much pain? Because they'd, they'd be, they're already way too proud. People are naturally proud. And so God uses criticism and misery to keep leaders humble. He uses suffering to keep them humble. And He wants to make sure that when we go into battle, we're trusting Him, not ourselves. Spurgeon in the preface to his little but very excellent work eccentric preachers writes I desire by this little volume to plead against the carping spirit which makes man an offender for a word and the lying spirit which scatters falsehood right and left into the injury and grief of the most zealous of my master's servants. Many hearers lose much blessing through criticizing too much and meditating too little, and many more incur a great sin by slandering those who live for the good of others. True pastors have enough of care and travail without being burdened by undeserving and useless fault finding. We have something better to do than to be forever answering every malignant or frivolous slander which is set afloat to injure us. And as ministers, we are very far from being perfect, but many of us are doing our best and we are grieved that the minds of our people should be more directed to our personal imperfections than to our divine message. God has purposely put his treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power should be ascribed to himself alone. We beseech our hearers not to be so occupied with the faults of the casket as to forget the jewel, end quote. The whole point there is that as leaders, you receive persecution. You're, there's not very many noble, not very many wise. Why? Because God has chosen the things that are not to shame the things that are are. And so that when people look at you, they think, man, all this incredible spiritual blessing couldn't be coming from that person. Because they're just this. And that is exactly right. And so being a spiritual leader is difficult. Any elder will tell you that you try to shepherd the flock according to The scriptures, and you pray, and you study, and you go to meetings, and you give up the bulk of your free time to serve in church. And then, when you have to confront an unrepentant sinner, they often get very vicious and very mean and send strong letters with nasty remarks. They disagree. And imply that the elders really are a bunch of devil worshipers who gather together in secret meetings to plot against the misery of the church. And people often have the worst possible thoughts of their leaders. That's why Paul says, we are we are the scum. We are the dregs of the earth. And so people go about slandering their elders when they don't want to submit to them and they go to the dark corners of the church and spread around their slanders like too much manure, trying to vilify the very ones that God has raised up to do them good. And those who protest against and protest against, the elders really protest against God himself because they protest Against the word of God. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. For this would be unprofitable for you. But what happens? As soon as we start dealing with some issue, some person, some sin. And all of a sudden the attacks begin to come. And people go, well, I want to know why this is. And we can't tell them. We can't divulge confidential information. They go, oh. Then they walk away and go, oh, well, you have something to hide, obviously. There's no winning. Why would God do this? Why would he set up that kind of system? To keep leaders humble. To keep them trusting the Lord. Because that's where the power is. That's where the power is. Every believer must be content to say, the Lord is with me. And that is enough. That's it. It gets down to where it it really gets bad. It's It's me and Jesus. And that's enough. The psalmist knew this as he wrote Psalm 91 verses 2 through 9 read, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God and whom I trust for it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or the arrow that flies by day of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked for you have made the Lord my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place. The Lord is the joy of every believer. And every single person who knows and loves the Lord knows this. Because persecutions don't just come upon leaders, but anyone who tries to live godly with Christ Jesus. I mean, it's just promised. You're going to have tribulation. If you're going to live for the Lord and you're going to be a light in the world you're going to be attacked, you're going to be vilified, you're going to be lied against, they're going to slander you, they're going to gossip against you. And you know, you can spend your whole life trying to chase down and justify and declare why you weren't what they are. But the fact is, you're everything they said and worse. Because we're all a bunch of sinners, depraved sinners, leaders are not. People come out and say, oh yeah, well you did this, well it's worse than you know. If I told you everything, you'd probably scream and run away. And so all of these little 120 people, not very many noble, not very many mighty, are all waiting around to start the biggest endeavor in the history of the world. Look at verse 53 where we read the disciples were continually in the temple praising God since they had this little siesta time, this little sure leave. They just went up to the temple every day and walked among the Jews who hated Christ and had him crucified and others who were clueless about Jesus. And they waited. They waited for power. And when it came, thousands came to Christ. And of course, that's where Luke picks up, right? In the book of Acts, Jesus Proclaimed by Peter and the day of Pentecost and the tongues of fire and the promise of the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And man, it begins the great spiritual battle which rages to this day. So the gospel story as told by Luke is presented here. I think the Apostle Paul summarizes the whole book pretty well in one verse. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was received, revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. And he's going to come again in glory. And it could be today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your graciousness. We look forward to the day when Jesus comes to take us into glory. When he comes to establish his kingdom on earth. When he comes to rule and reign in righteousness. Father, I thank you for the gospel of Luke and all that we've been able to learn through it. May you help us to apply what we need to apply. Remember what we need to remember and forget whatever error has come from this pulpit. Father, I pray that you would also help us to walk before you filled with the Spirit, worshiping you with joy and praising you daily, for you surely are worth it. We pray in Christ's name, amen.